My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man with over 45 years of both national and international law enforcement experience. During that time, he has worked counterterrorism, narcotics, human trafficking, organized crime, money laundering, and protective operations, just to name a few. He was part of the Mariel Boatlift with the Cuban Refugees, Operation Overlord, Operation Purple Haze, and Anguillity, a team of prior law enforcement that helped U.S. and international forces during Operation Enduring Freedom. He's received such awards as the U.S. Attorney Office Award, U.S. Customs Commissioner's Award, the Jordanian Army Appreciation Award, the Peruvian Government Appreciation Award, the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics Committee, and was even the Florida State Agent of the Year for 2017. It's a huge honor to have this guy tell his story. Please welcome Miles Sun. What's going on, my friend? DJ, thank you, sir. Um, and on this wonderful um, Memorial Day, I thank you for allowing me to speak with you and your audience. Uh, before we start, I just want to give a shout out to one of my fellow co-workers and colleague, uh, John Logis. John Logis is a um, retired Fort Lauderdale uh, police officer detective. He's currently a special agent with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, where I work currently. John's dad, John Earl Logis was um, killed in action September 6, 1969 in South Vietnam when John, my partner, was six months old. And I just want to give a shout out to John, the son, for the ultimate sacrifice that his family made on behalf of a, this wonderful, wonderful nation. So thank you, sir. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you started that off like this. And it goes to show all of the different things that you've been through, the different areas of law enforcement, not only local, but federal and international. But I want to start way back in the day, uh, early life and family. Now, in 1936, your uncle, a first-grade detective, Eddie's son, uh, brought Luke, uh, Lucky Luciano to trial. Uh, can you give us a little bit of the background on your family, him, and then we'll kind of get into your father? Well, my father's um, had two brothers uh, who were both New York City police officers, one of them, Eddie Son, was a first grade detective in 1936 and 1937. He was working undercover to against uh, Lucky Luciano and his organization, and they were trying to bring him in for uh, numerous violations. Um, however, my uncle working undercover was able to pose as a homeless person one of, in front of one of his brothels, was able to ultimately identify a number of the women who worked there, was able to flip these women and ultimately they testified against um, Lucky Luciano, and he was ultimately uh, convicted by then the, um, uh, the, the district attorney, uh, Thomas Dewey, um, sentenced to 30, 30 to 50 years. Um, he ultimately cooperated with the government during World War II, 
And the irony of that story was that my father at the time was part of the 36th Infantry Division, um, North Africa, Italy. And when the invasion of Sicily was coming up, Lucky Luciano was asked by the military to provide any assistance he could have with regard to any mafia dons in Italy, Sicily, who can provide information on the German movements and whereabouts. And this, I always felt that this information that was ultimately turned over to the military was possibly a reason that my father was able to be successful landing in the invasion of Sicily and surviving the war. Um, it's an irony of ironies that my his brother arrested him. He subsequently uh, cooperated with the government, provided intel and information that helped American forces um, uh, defeat the Germans in Sicily. And my father was part of that. Well, a couple of things about that story are, were interesting to me. One, that uh, the he acted as a homeless person, got some prostitutes to flip because they couldn't get him really on anything else. Uh, and they ultimately got him on the prostitution. That's what brought him in and stuff. That was the interesting part. But to also release him at a time where he could go back over to Italy, gather that information and give it back. I mean, it seems like all of the, you know, the stars kind of lined up on that one. A absolutely. And uh, ultimately what happened was when he was released um, and he was still in New York State um, and he was able to have make these contacts with his, you know, um, brethren in, in uh, Sicily who provide the information that was useful for the American military. Um, his um, his penance was basically, OK, he was um, allowed to be released from from uh, prison. Um, but he was ultimately uh, deported back to Italy where he lived out his life. But uh, he did assist and he also assisted and ensured that the docks, the, the waterfront in New York and New Jersey were not being sabotaged by any um, Asian provocateurs, you know, on the German or the Italian side. So his men on the docks were also providing intel with regard to the FBI with regard to any conspiracy to um, cause havoc on the docks. So he was um, a vital asset to the American government at that time. Yeah, it, it's so crazy to me that, that all of those things connected together. And then talking about your father in 1957, there's a picture of him uh, as a New York corrections officer, and uh, he was actually transporting the Mad Bomber. Now, I don't know that a lot of people know about the Mad Bomber, um, but if you could kind of tell the story of the Mad Bomber, your dad, and then how that kind of all fell together. Um, well, in, from 1946 to, um, or 1945 to about 1957-58, um, gentleman by the last name McKeskey was setting off bombs in Grand Central Station, bus stations, libraries, all, all throughout the city. Um, and basically it was because of uh, his being upset uh, at being laid off by the electric company and felt that he was, he was wronged and he was, you know, retaliating for what he felt was a wrong. Um, ultimately, he was um, arrested in Connecticut, and at that time, um, um, waiting extradition, my father was, uh, New York City Corrections was actually uh, uh, part of the extradition team, bringing him in and bringing him, uh, Metesky, the mad bomber, um, into court and uh, was responsible for him, his movement, once he was in custody from, you know, the jails to the court and every court appearance. So uh, that was my father um, involved with some high stake um, domestic terrorist individual back in the 50s. Well, and with you growing up with that uncle, with your father, 
being around these big of names back then because these were huge. I mean, we didn't have, uh, you know, the social media and everything like that. So these stories were, you know, they spread like wildfire in the newspapers back then. Growing up in a family like that, did you always want to be in law enforcement? Did you always want to be like these guys? What was it about it that really kind of set you on this path? The, um, the trigger uh, really was my brother also was retired in New York City, uh, lieutenant from NYPD. And growing up, um, my father had passed away when I was younger at 13. So all the stories that I would hear came from my brother. My father would tell my brother. My brother was, was emulating my father. And I just wanted to emulate my brother, uh, you know, vicariously through, you know, through him, my uncle, my father. But my brother was my brother, Paul. Uh, was the one who I um, always wanted to be and, you know, be like him. He was, uh, he went on the job back in 1968, retired in 1992. Um, he did a multitude of things and um, he was the um, the guiding force that gave me the, that impetus. Um, and it was not until I started my career that I even knew about my father and my uncle. I didn't know any of this prior to even starting my own career. It was all my brother telling me later in life. Well, when you do that and, and you go into law enforcement yourself, you have these guys that are local, NYPD, New York Corrections, your brother NYPD. Uh, you kind of chose both sides of it. You've done both local law enforcement, federal law enforcement, and then, like we said, international law enforcement. Of the three, what do you think was your favorite and why do you think it was your favorite of them? Um, I truly feel like I was blessed to have had the opportunity to get hired by the federal government and the opportunities that were given me were just you know, amazing. The ability to travel around the world, travel to South America, every country, um, deal with a um, multitude of different you know, federal U.S. government agencies along with international agencies was a uh, truly, to me, a godsend. I just The opportunities were amazing. Had I stayed local, um, I probably never would have had those opportunities. Um, it was just fortuitous that I got hired by the federal government only because in 1975, when I was coming of age at 20 years old, the uh, New York City was going through a financial crisis where they laid off 8,000 police officers. And myself, Bob Stockman, Lorenzo Toledo, we were all competing against these individuals that were laid off and sub subsequently trying to get hired by other agencies. So I applied for Nassau County, Suffolk County, uh, Westchester County, New York State troopers, but I'm applying and competing against 8,000 cops that were laid off. And it was very, very difficult. And so my uh, next option was taking, you know, a federal exam, which was the U.S. Border Patrol. And I was subsequently, um, you know, interviewed and hired. And I just remember my brother had taken me to Newark, New Jersey, to have my final interview for the Border Patrol. We, he drove me there. And when we're leaving, he said to me, and I just really wasn't understanding it, but he told me, you, you do not know how lucky you are to be able to get out of the city and have this opportunity to do other things than just being, you know, a New York City police officer. You know, New York City back then was in, in tough, tough times and the city was, you know, was in tough straits and um, that was the last thing he actually wanted for me to do and he was just very very happy that i had the opportunity to move on and get out of the city and well let's talk about that with nypd you say it was a rough time in the city so what uh we're talking uh mid 70s going into late 70s correct that is correct sir 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the kind of atmosphere that was New York City at that time. Of course, it hadn't been cleaned up yet. Giuliani hadn't come in and kind of swept it out. Uh, what were not only the the citizens of New York going through, but I think it mirrors very much today's times. What were the New York cops uh, kind of confronting right then? Um, well, you you the analogy you made today to back then is spot on. Um, you had you know uh, police officers who truly wanted to do the right thing, wanted to do their job. But we're um, at that time we're not getting the support from you know uh, you know the courts, the prosecutors. Um, it was a revolving door where you know you had prisoners and uh, arrestees getting arrested out the next day. Um, um, back then, the New York City um, uh, subways were just graffiti, you know, just filled with graffiti. The city was like um, truly um, in a bad state uh, financially. Um, uh, you know, the cops were just not happy because there was no backing of the police. Um, the courts, you know, were looking to get people out, out as quickly as they could because they, they didn't, the dockets were overflowing. Um, you know, Rikers Island was overflowing. Um, it was just a, uh, a, a bad state of affairs um, during that period of time. And um, the, the cops weren't being respected. The only respect they got was from each other. And um, it was just a tough time to be a police officer in New York City at, at that time. So, uh, and that's somewhat what's happening again today. Um, you know, it's, I put the blame more on the court systems where the bail reform has uh, allowed um, uh, arrestees to, you know, be out the next day. Um, fortunately, on the federal level, uh, most arrestees are, uh, are held and incarcerated until trial. On the state level, it's completely different. You know, um, you know, you post a bond, your surety bond, personal security surety bond, and you're out. And you have individuals that are committing felonies and are out in two days and committing felonies again. And that's what the, the problem is, in, in my opinion, in New York State and New York City. So even New York City is is in a, in a bad way because New York State has passed this legislation with bail reform. And they're stuck with the outcome of that. And uh, that's what we're seeing in New York today. Uh, the crime rate is going through the roof. Well, I'm guessing it's the same thing in the area that you're in, too, because you still have open borders. I mean, you're you're wide open to the world there. Are you seeing a lot of because I've talked to a couple of guys where, you know, El Salvadorians are coming through uh, MS-13. You have all the gangs that are flooding into that Miami Hialeah area. You've got to be seeing the same thing on that state level in the area that you're in. Well, you're you're absolutely correct. The problem that we have here in Florida, uh, especially in South Florida, at the state attorney's level, the um, the offices, the state attorney, Broward County, Dade County, Palm Beach County, um, the salaries are not nearly as high as they should be. They don't match what the federal government pays. So you have assistant state attorneys making a very low salary and the turnover rate is so great when you have 100 state attorneys a uh, deficit of 100 state attorneys in Dade County or 50 in Broward County that the um, the system is at the point in my opinion again of potential collapse because you don't have enough prosecutors so the um, it comes down to how many uh, individuals have been arrested, how many deals can we make because we can't afford to go to trial because we don't have the manpower or woman power. And you've got deals being made all the time for, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, pleading guilty or no, no prosecution, no process on cases. It's, um, 
probably as bad as it's ever been here in South Florida at the state level, at the state judiciary, just because of lack of manpower. Um, you, you know, law enforcement is doing their job. Law enforcement in South Florida's uh, departments are very, very professional. But if you don't have the courts and the prosecutors to um, prosecute the, the individuals, then everything the cops do is somewhat for naught. Well, and, and when you say that, though, you bring up a scenario that is kind of a doomsday scenario, but I think it's a lot I think it's a lot closer than a lot of people think it is when you talk about a total collapse from the inside of the court system. And then, of course, law enforcement falls in behind that because there's nothing there's no end accountability for the officers doing their job. So let's say that we do see a collapse in the courts. What process does that take us through coming up? Well, um, basically, you would have uh, a revolving door scenario what we had in the 70s in New York. But I truly believe um, that um, at the state level, the state level has stepped in. Um, a couple of the counties down here are short manpower at the state attorney offices. And the state attorney general has stepped in and provided assistance with assistant um, uh, statewide prosecutors. You know, prosecutors who work for the attorney general who have statewide authority who have actually filled the void um, at some of these uh, state attorney's offices uh, in Monroe County, which is with the Key, Key West um, Marathon, uh, where all the landings are occurring with, you know, Cuban migrants. That county has been really decimated by the loss of um, state attorneys. And the state was able to fill uh, temporarily some of the void by bringing in statewide prosecutors. Um, so it's, it's um, a quick fix, but hopefully, um, and um, I'm, I'm not politics here, but the, coven, the current governor has made it a mission to uh, elevate the salaries of state attorneys as well as law enforcement officers. So hopefully with the increase in salary that we might be able to maintain and recruit more prosecutors who will stay on for whatever the period of time is, more than two or three years. We just need more prosecutors staying on the job longer. Well, and you, you talked about, uh, you brought up Bob Starkman, and and I want to kind of point out something there. He went kind of the opposite direction of you. He started local being a corrections officer, then went, of course, federal. You were federal and kind of stayed federal for quite a while, but now working in a local capacity that we could say. He has admitted that that helped him a lot in his federal career by knowing how to make those connections with the local law enforcement, with the local courts, with the local corrections officers. Do you think you being federal for so long and then coming back to a local level, do you think that's helped you out in your career? Well, um, in my current capacity, um, one of my, the, the, the case that I was uh, um, recognized for being, you know, the agent of the year back in 2017 was basically predicated on my, knowledge of the federal system the case i had it was you know uh, uh, burglaries of a, a multitude of walgreens and cbs's for the um for the narcotics and once we were able to then identify the burglars we were able to then figure out who the burglars were giving the um the stolen um you know um meds to um it turns out that knowing how the federal system works i was i called my local hida here in south florida and found out 
the subject that I thought was the receiver recipient of all the narcotics turned out there was an open case by HSI in Miami on this individual. I made the contact. I knew to go to Haida because my past experience, I knew once they told me that there was an open case on him. I knew who the agent was and we were able to combine forces where we made it a, an OCDEF case where we prosecuted federally and state on all the subjects. So my federal experience helped me a lot on my state experience currently, uh, just because I just have uh, a lot of contacts. I just, you know, I just, uh, and it's not because I'm any smarter. I, I was joking, I said to Bob Stockman, I said, it's just that I've been on the planet so long and quote, my role is actually just full of uh, contacts. I just got a ton of, you know, contacts, you know, I'm, I, I'm working with kids, kids of their dads were my partners. You know, it's like, uh, it, it's, 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 it's very, very unique situation. And I, uh, I smile every day that I've, I have this opportunity. Um, and, but again, I feel blessed that my federal time and my federal investigative time, having worked with the locals for so long while I was a fed gave me the insight on how to handle state cases and who to go to when I believe if a state case was bigger or greater than then prosecute on the state side, we go federal, and that's, I would know who to go to, be it HSI, be it Secret Service, you know, be, uh, you know, be it DEA. So I, I knew the other, to go the other route just because of uh, being a Fed. Well, it's funny that you mentioned working with the children of your old partners because most all of your children have gone into law enforcement. Your son, Michael, is a special yeah. agent with HSI. Your daughter, Mallory, is a special agent with the ATF. You have a daughter-in-law that is in law enforcement. Um, that's, that's correct. I'm, I'm blessed. So with my son, his current partner, his, he's, he's been with HSI for three years. Prior to that, he had five years with the Broward Sheriff's Office. And his current partner is the son of, the son of one of my former partners. So it's the irony of the irony is, is that my son's partner now is uh, the son of, um, um, uh, you know, a former partner. And this is the group um, before Lorenzo retired. This is the group that my son works for, the gang group. And the Lorenzo made sure prior to his retiring, when my son was in the academy, to make sure that Michael was, um, he got Michael and got into the group and um, he, Lorenzo knew that Mike would be do well and would be taken care of in the sense that he had the right people around him who would show him the ropes. And uh, that was, you know, a godsend by Lorenzo, Lorenzo Toledo. Um, so, and before Lorenzo's last hurrah, he also made me a TFO test force officer back to that. That was my old group. So I had the opportunity to work my son um, on some cases as him being a fed me being you know state police and being a task force officer his group so we worked cases together you know i'd be out there doing warrants and or surveillance working with my son but what is that like working with your son of course it sounds fun and everything but there's got to be a level of you don't want anything to happen to your kid i mean that's your kid you hope that you've done right in telling him how to be safe in his career but it's got to take it to a whole nother level well, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. It was, um, it, for, for me, it would be a situation where the last thing um, I wanted was uh, anything like initially like, okay, hey, Michael, your daddy's, you know, your daddy's here, your daddy's checking up on you, you know, your daddy's this, daddy's that, where the guys in his office, even though they can cut it up and, and, and have fun, um, they had the 
have the ultimate respect for me, but I backed off. My position was I learned, and not, not in a derogatory sense, I learned to be a good Indian. My job was if I was asked for any advice, I would provide it. Um, if you need me to be on surveillance, um, I was available. Um, I would just, you know, stay back, you know, lay back and just, you know, hey, whatever you want me for, I'm good to go. You know, whatever you need me for, I'm, a, I'm you know, I'm a good trooper. Um, and I would just smile internally and marvel uh, watching my son, you know, perform uh, and how he interacted with with his current, um, um, you know, colleagues and that came from prior his prior experiences the burglary uh, he was a detective with the burglary apprehension team with broward county so he was on the street he had a lot of street smarts um probably more than i've ever had because in, he in a short period of time he was able to glean a lot of experience and he's just he's got the common sense he's when i would talk about him it's not you know bragging or anything but i him and my daughter, they I always would say that they have the it factor, you know, and whatever the it factor is. And it was not speaking as a, a dad; it was just speaking as a, a fellow agent. If I, if I needed somebody, I would follow him into a hole. I'd follow her into a hole when she'd open it, when she'd give me um, uh, would ask for advice. So that's how I looked at him. So I was, I had to really work at not being a dad and just being another body in the group when I was around them. And, um, and, and I, lastly, I didn't want to embarrass him. I didn't want him to feel uncomfortable. And, uh, so now I can be hanging out with him in, 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 in the squad and five different police departments hanging out in his office. And it's all like good to go. It's like, it's, it's no, um, he doesn't feel like he has to hide. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting point that you bring up about being a dad or being someone part of the group. But there's always got to be that little tug at you. I, I know there had to be of trying to be part of the group, but also maybe being overly aggressive with your son just to make sure that they were correct, but in a low-key sense. Well, I'll give you um, a quick story. Um, a number of years ago when Broward County was going to body cameras, um, they had three different companies that were bidding for the contract. So my son was on the job a year or two. And he worked in a pretty um, tough neighborhood, tough area, tough district. And he was selected. There was 25 cameras for each company, 75 total for, you know, uh, for the, to be tested out of the 2,000-person uh, department. So he was selected to have, have one. And the first night he put it on, he's working a midnight shift, and he comes home in the morning. He was still, you know, living at home. And uh, he said, hey, I want you to see something. And he was called to a laundromat at 3.30 in the morning. And you had an individual who turns out was not on his meds. He was a Haitian American. Um, he was basically, you know, you know, out, out to lunch. He just wasn't on his meds. And as he's walking, as I'm watching him through his camera walking into the laundromat at 3:30, you have two other deputies um, who two and they're you know uh, both white deputies with their guns drawn. The guy had a knife in his hand. He's swinging the knife, and um, and they. He basically, you know, loud telling him to put the, put the knife down, put the knife down, put the knife down. My son walks in and he looks at the two deputies and he tells them to holster. And my son just gives the guy a verbal, a verbal punch and um, tells the guy, you know, you know, you know, you know, to drop it. And um, and the guy actually snapped to and, you know, complied with his command. And I'm watching this and the guy's swinging the knife and I'm watching this. I can't say anything because I'm just thinking, you know, uh, basically I said, Hey, what happens if he didn't comply and he came attacking, you know, the, you know, that 20 foot rule between a knife and an officer, you know, you, you know, the, you know, the distance. And he said to me, 
bottom line goes, I knew, this is Michael saying to me, I knew that I can take him without, um, you know, you know, without lethal, without, you know, without, without anything you know, lethal. And I knew I could take him. And um, if I didn't have to use it, I wasn't going to use it. And uh, so at that point, I have to accept that. And I can't, I, don't, I was not going into what if or anything like that. I respected him and I was pr- proud of him. Again, watching it as a dad, I was like, you know, I was all balled up in the throat. It was like, I was like choking, you know, watching this uh, unfold and waiting for the potentiality of something ugly. And it turned out, thank goodness, it was, um, it was a good scenario. And the irony of that was at the time, my daughter, before she was ATF, was a mental health counselor at the local hospital that my son was bringing this individual in Florida, they call it the Baker Act. When you have an individual who's being brought in, uh, having a mental episode. So my daughter worked the Baker Acts. So my, my son is bringing in the individual who he just arrested to my daughter to try to get him back on his meds and try to get him straightened out, you know, you know, for, for court time. So here, um, um, you know, it was like an irony, my son arresting and, and, and bring him to the hospital so my daughter can, um, assess and, um, and, and get the guy stable. Well, let's walk through your career a little bit. Um, okay. you, you've had some interesting things that happen along the way. So we're going to go kind of, we'll scan over your okay. entire career, but I want to talk about some specific things that you and I have talked about before we ever recorded this, um, things that are important in your career that you want to talk about. So okay. let's start out with, uh, immigration and naturalization. Now this is 77 to 79 you're Chula Vista, California, which is not a bad place to be stationed. Nope. Um, not, not the greatest, but not a bad station. Um, and then I want to move into San Ysidro, California. But let's let's start out with your career working Border Patrol. How were you at speaking Spanish? How were you at sensing that? Because 77, 79, I don't really remember. I was pretty young, but I don't really remember anything uh, that was that bad on the border at that time. Well, you, you're pretty spot on. Um, the the bigger issues back then were more alien smuggling rings. You know, it wasn't cartels at the time. It was just a lot of alien smuggling. But here you got a New York a New Yorker who gets hired um, and gets his letter in the mail. Um, you know, uh, Chula Vista, California. And back then there was no internet, so I had to get a, a encyclopedia and uh, look where Chula Vista, California was on the map. Um, I, you know, I, I fly in uh, my very first day. It's a Sunday. Uh, I land in San Diego, which is south of San Diego, San Diego proper. And, uh, and, and, and nothing derogatory here in New York. If you, if you come, if you're meeting and you have friends that are Hispanic in New York, the, you use the word, you use the term Puerto Rican for every Hispanic in, in New York, a Puerto Rican could be a Dominican. It could be a Colombian. Back then, if you were Hispanic, you were Puerto Rican. So my, and, and we knew the difference, but we just said, hey, it was Puerto Rican. So when I landed and the cab driver was taking me to Chula Vista and he gave me a, 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 a he drove me down to San Ysidro, which is right on the border with Tijuana. And I'm looking and I'm, and I'm in the United States. I'm in this, this, the county of San Diego, the city limits of San Diego. San Ysidro was in the city limits. And I'm looking around. I said, Why? I, I'm, I'm looking at it. There's not, not one quote Anglo face in the crowd. And I'm looking around. I said, man, look at all these. Puerto Ricans and the cab driver turns around and looks at me gives me this funny look like I was a Martian and he goes they're Chicanos and Hispanics I said and Mexicans I said yeah I know they're, they're Puerto Ricans you know like you know like and I was not being derogatory I was just being you know that New York you know like uh, hey you know uh, and, and realizing wait a minute um, just loaded with Hispanics 
and um, uh, basically go to the academy, come back. Um, my my first, um, I'm on the job less than a year. I went out into a shooting. Um, my, myself and my partner were surrounded. Talk about how dangerous it was. We were dangerous with alien smuggling. We were surrounded by literally um, a group of 500. We were like, it was like a hornet's nest. We walked into a hornet's nest. We were on the American side. Um, they're waiting for dust to turn to dark. And we were trying, we were trying to round up as many as we could and, and put them in the van. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, someone blurts out, we took our jacket off, hid the badge, and someone blurts out, you know, La Migra, which, you know, the, you know, immigration in Spanish. And all of a sudden, we're like, we're just being buzzed. And one of the smugglers um, is upset and actually starts attacking my partner. Um, uh, he, he picks up these boulders, size of, you know, softballs, and he, he initially hits my, my, my partner on the back. My partner has his nightstick and hits him, gets him off, but the, the guy didn't go down. And I'm just watching this in slow motion, and the guy picks up a second boulder, and I yelled at him in Spanish, you know, parate, parate in Spanish to stop. And he looked at me and came charging, and I just, I, it, how the adrenaline flows, you know, I drew, I drew my weapon, I fired, and um, I, see, I see him jump, and we're at six feet. And I see him jump, and my partner is watching, and he's from upstate New York, he's a hunter, I'm from the city, I don't know anything about guns or hunting. And he goes, you hit him. And he, he jumped and he ran back to Tijuana. And I said, what are you talking about? He just, he just ran away. He goes, it's just like a deer. He goes, they get hit and they run. And then two minutes later, his partners brought him back into San Ysidro on the San Diego side so he could get medical treatment. And all I remember is I, my Spanish at the time wasn't good enough, but I was so upset that he caused me to do this. It was like, I, I didn't, you know, like I was like, I, my emotions were all over the place. But had I not, um, he would have um, hit either my partner or myself over the head with the rock. And the reason this resonated because one of my Spanish instructors in the academy uh, was was hit over the head with a rock, lost all his senses, almost died. And they always talked about that uh, when you're on the border, you know, rock throwing and, you know, rock incidents were at the time were much greater than, you know, rifle fire, gunfire, and that rocks were a lethal weapon. And that was in my head when I saw him pick up that rock. I'm thinking about my, my instructor talking to us about his own personal incident. And, um, I, I, you know, at that, I, I had to stop the threat. Um, he ultimately was um, arrested, charged with alien smuggling, assault on a federal officer, you know, convicted. But it was, um, it, was a, it was a turning point. It was a very, it was upsetting because nobody wants to, as an officer, you don't want to do that. You don't have to. Um, but I realized the alien smuggling component was very, very violent. The drugs were less, but it was alien smuggling it was very big. Well, let's talk about a couple different things in that story, though. You're very young in your career, um, and you have a firearms discharge. You actually shoot a suspect. Uh, that's one thing. Number two, we're talking late 70s, not even 80s. There's probably not a lot of air support. There's probably not a lot of backup coming. Radios. It's, it's a completely different era that you're working in. You're doing the same job in the middle of the desert. You're in the middle of a hornet's nest. It's a completely different environment. Now, I wouldn't say that that stuff doesn't go on today, but having less technology, having less, less than lethal options, we'll even say, right. it puts you in a different kind of state of mind working in the desert. 100% that, you know, all we had was our, our wheel gun, revolver. You know, back then we didn't have keepers yet. It was still loop, you know, the, 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 the rounds went to loops and like the old Westerns. And, uh, you know, here, you know, uh, and and the irony of that was 
at the time, we didn't even get new weapons out of the academy. Everybody got a different weapon. Um, you know, one guy got a Smith, one guy got a, you know, a Ruger, one guy got a, uh, a Colt. And one of the drills that we used to do on the range was um, you, the, the wheel was empty and there was two rounds on the ground. Uh, one round you had to know to put it at 11 o'clock or 1 o'clock, which way the wheel spun. And uh, so if you had a, uh, a Smith that went counter, if you had a, a Colt that went clockwise, and you had to make sure that you knew where to put that round. And that was the training we had back then. Um, uh, but, you know, the bottom line was uh, after the shooting, um, we were able to call for help, and we, had, we were able to get the Border Patrol helicopter. It comes in at about 50 feet, and literally – the aliens were still a hornet's nest and they were throwing rocks at the helicopter. The helicopter, helicopter had to retreat or go a higher altitude just so they didn't get knocked out of the sky. Um, and they were trying to use their, their you know, the, the rotors just to keep the, you know, the aliens back from us. Um, our vehicles at the time, we had a, a makeshift from like, is it what they did in Iraq in the very beginning of the Iraqi, you know, the Americans in Iraq in 0304, we had to up armor them, put cages on them because um, uh, they were constantly, you know, throwing rocks. So we used to call them the war wagons. Uh, so our vehicles wouldn't, you know, you know, glass, flying glass wasn't going to, you know, get us. So we had to have individuals with war wagons come in and extract us, um, you know, just, you know, because we were surrounded. But you mentioned right there, there's a key word right there, a war wagon. That would never be allowed today to be That's used right. for law enforcement. Right. That's correct. I mean, like, you know, but we'd be on the border patrolling the border and you were getting hit all the time with um, with objects. And then not only that, they would have they would bury, um, you know, long, you know, six, you know, uh, you know, six by tens um, pieces of wood with nails in them under the ground just to, uh, you know, cause flats. And uh, so you'd be stuck and then they can just, you know, you know, you know, attack you and, you know, roll the vehicle. I mean, that's what we dealt with. That was, but that was all alien smuggling operations. Um, you know, they were, at the time, the numbers were, were staggering. I mean, they're still staggering today, but you would have literally a group of 500 down the middle and a thousand flanking left and right trying, you know, the, the 500 up the middle was a sacrifice. The thousand to the left and the thousand to the right is like, you know, just like a Cheech and Chong movie, you know, just, you know, run, 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 and, you know, and, and, and go. And that's, we're dealing with, you know, maybe 10, 15 agents per shift, you know, against thousands. Um, I then came to realize, I said, well, how am I going to handle this, you know, morally? I said, if, I would look at these mothers coming with babies. I look at these, you know, families. I said, you know, thank God I was born on this side of the border, that I was blessed to be born in the United States in this great country. If I was on that side, I would probably do exactly the same thing. Um, and after this incident, I was able to, um, you know, persuade, you know, supervisors, I said, listen, I'd rather be, um, on transport, give me a van, you know, can hold 20. Um, and I make sure every night, you know, the van was loaded with food. Um, and you know, you got a group of agents have 10 here, 10 there, 20, wherever it may be and do the roundups and pick them up, bring them back to the station. So, um, I felt my mission, uh, internally, uh, morally, I said, okay, let me, you know, I'll do the transport. I'll feed them. I'll explain to them that, listen, in the morning, we send you back. Um, if we don't see you in three days, we know you made it to L.A. Um, you know, that was so I, I felt a little better about myself. OK, at least um, they the aliens, the Mexicans, you know, the other than Mexicans, Guatemalans, El Salvadorans knew, OK, that we were not the bad guys. I didn't want to be looked upon as the bad guy. I just like I just wanted to hey, we're doing our job and um, I can do it in a compassionate way. But Miles, there almost has to be a conflict going on in your brain. There, oh, there's such a dichotomy yes. there because yes. 
Yep. Your whole job is to make sure that this happens, to, to, to be out there on the ground, to make sure that these guys aren't slipping across the lines, that people Correct. aren't being smuggled. And after the shooting, you decide to take another avenue, still working with the group, but there had to be something, as long as you've been in law enforcement, it, 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 it tells me that inside you, there had to be something tearing at you, not working the fields like that. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, because the moral conflict was that I'm, I'm here. Um, uh, the job is to protect the borders and, you know, and, and do whatever we can. But, you know, you need support staff. And I said, OK, at this moment, I'm, I felt like I was better served being support staff. And looking back um, after my shooting, there was no they said, Are you OK? And they just gave me another gun. You know, no, you know, the, nothing about PTSD, you know, you know nothing about go speak to um, uh, a mental health counselor, you know, just to see how you feel, you know, like all these emotions were, were very stressful. Like, you know, what, what, what just occurred and there was no, no professional help um, other than, you know, the, you know, the macho attitude. Okay. Give me your weapon and here's another weapon, Uh, you know, exchange of weapons. Um, So it was basically, I had to deal with that internally on my own. So do you take that forward in your career? Not well, being I, able to work out that first level of PTS, do you take it forward not only for yourself in your law enforcement career, but people that you're leading later on? Well, uh, what, I, I, what I, I felt it actually did was make me more compassionate and, and more my ability, you know, in law enforcement, the macho, macho, macho. My, my position was um, going forward once I became an investigator was using the knowledge I gleaned from Border Patrol and, and being an inspector about the immigration laws, using it to assist when I went to L.A., other agencies, you know, LAPD, uh, DEA, ATF. I worked jointly with those guys. And if we had nothing criminally, that we would use it, um, the immigration component. And I was very good at understanding and knowing what we could do immigration-wise civilly. And um, I always felt that I, I was good because I was able to give other agencies an option. Okay. If we can't go criminal, we can't do this. We can't do that. Okay. I'm on board. Um, you know, I'm, I'm part of the group and I can help you. So basically I felt like, um, I was using my immigration talents, um, in, in another way to help the mission uh, the bigger mission, whatever that mission may have been, you know, money laundering, you know, um, you know, drug smuggling, dealing with Columbia's and, and, um, in Miami, you know, wherever I may be, it helped me greatly. Um, that experiences and that understanding of the immigration laws, it made me a much, much better, much better agent um, in the sense that was another tool that other agents didn't have. Um, you know, you know, Bob Schlockman, Laurent, he came in with a ton of knowledge as a um, with the locals. Um, uh, Lorenzo Toledo came in with a ton of knowledge of customs um, from ATF. Um, and then you know, um, a detective in Bergen County, uh, when he left ATF to go to the, to, to the county, he was a detective for four years and then came back to customs. Alex, um, his his ability, because which I will get to shortly, but his ability to understand um, the movement of cargo. He was a import-export broker prior to coming to U.S. Customs, and the movement of cargo made him unique in the world of agents because the world of agents and customs was just okay it's illegal substance make an arrest 
So ultimately, because of his knowledge and my my investigative experience, how we came together and was like a marriage made in heaven, where we had the undercover, we had the Operation Overlord, all that was because of his talent. So all of us had unique talents that we brought to the table that was truly unique, um, and that was we worked synergistically and became like better as a whole, just because of our individual talents. So. Let's let's go back 42 years, May 7th, 1980. You talk about going to Miami. You're TDY yep. from San Ysidro, California. You're processing the Mario boat lift. Talk to people about what that is, what it meant for Miami Hialeah at that time, and then the, the kind of weird thing that happened to you, because this kind of happens a lot throughout your career. There's all these anomalies that happen to you. Uh, so let's, let's talk about the boat lift first and kind of explain what that was. Well, what you back in, in uh, it was April 27th, 1980, where uh, in Havana, Cuba, about 10,000 Cubans jumped the, 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 uh, the, the Peruvian embassy in Havana, they jumped the fence and there was 10,000 refugees inside the Peruvian embassy. It was a standoff. It was going on for a while. Um, at the time, then Castro said, okay. Um, he said, anybody want to leave? You're free to leave. And all of a sudden, the floodgates were open. What we're seeing today on the on, on the border between Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico, um, perfect example, month of April, uh, this past year, 18,000 Cubans came in on the southwest border. They've changed their, their strategy from coming across the, the Straits and in, in, into Key West. The majority are now coming in from Mexico in, into Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. But back then, they got on a boat, and they were, Castro unloaded his jails, his mental hospitals. Put so if DJ and Miles went from Miami to Cuba to pick up their family members, the Cuban authorities said, "Okay, DJ, you got to take this guy, this guy, this guy. If you want to take your sister and mother, Miles, if you want to take your sister and mother, you got to take these ten people." So what happened? We had boatloads for months of family members along with a criminal element and a mentally unstable element that was coming into Key West. In Key West, uh, they were initially processed. They moved up to Keys. Um, in, in, at the time, was the, the Orange Bowls where the University of Miami played and where the uh, Miami Dolphins played. They were being housed temporarily. Um, every 30 minutes, there would be a busload that would go into Opelaka, which is just outside of Miami, it was a U.S. Coast Guard base with World War II blimp hangers. The blimp hangers were so big, it looked like they can engulf 10 football fields. And what these blimp hangers were set up to do, we had these serpentine lines with thousands of tables. And you had the serpentine lines, you got CIA, DIA, U.S. Customs, U.S. Immigration. So as the aliens came off the bus from the Orange Bowl, they would be interviewed by every agency that the federal government had. Um, and you'd be at these tables sitting there 12, 14 hours a day uh, with, with a Cuban refugee in front of you. And at the time, I thought my Spanish was pretty good. I was basically, I was in L.A., I was in uh, San Diego. Uh, my Spanish was basically, you know, Chicano, Mexican, Mexican-American Spanish. I come to Miami and the Spanish by the, you know, the Cubans that I'm dealing with were so it was it was it was different from when I, I spoke. I would speak in Spanish. They look at me like I was again. I was a Martian. I had no idea what I was saying. However, thank goodness for the community. The community itself came together. The my, the uh, Cuban American community, like the uh, at the time the um, like the Alex Alonzos of the world, the Lorenzo, uh, Lorenzo Toledo's, where the family members came, 
They acted 24-7 as translators. They brought food. They brought everything they could to help the government, us, the government employees, do our job. Um, it was a interesting experience. Again, it was one of those experiences, man, what I saw these individuals go through was even worse. And I didn't think there was going to be anything worse than what I saw on the border with Mexico. You know, the, the, how the Cubans were, you know, um, you know, what they were fleeing. They were fleeing a communist uh, regime that was just, um, you know, torturous. It was just, is you know, bad as, you know, the former Soviet Union, bad as Nazi Germany. These people were treated uh, horribly um, and they just wanted freedom. Ultimately, the city of Miami, Hialeah, um, with so many um, criminals being let out, um, um, you know, and, you know, and mental health issue individuals, there was no treatment, there was nothing for them, that the city and the county, Miami-Dade County, became a war zone. The murder rate went through the roof. The numbers were staggering. It was, um, it was a time, it was like the wild, wild west for a long period of time. Um, it was, uh, I'm, I'm proud to say that Miami-Dade was able to recover, but they were really, they were clobbered. They were clobbered. And that's what you guys are seeing on the border now. Um, and so I can relate to what's going on on the southwest border, Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico, um, because it's the same thing that I saw, you know, 40 years ago. Um, everybody wants to come here. You mentioned that, though, Miles, but you kind of had the perfect storm in Miami at that time. You're talking about the cocaine cowboys era. You're not only talking about Cuba, Mexico. You're talking about South America, most definitely a Colombian influence. But you had a lot of different South American countries that were coming over through that port. I mean, that was one of the biggest ports in the world at the time. So you had that perfect storm. The reason I bring that up being the perfect storm is because... You process someone through, and then three years later, you run into them in L.A. County again, which I want to show that the reason I bring that up is because a lot of people talking about recidivism and people going back to doing that crime. You saying that you were compassionate, you working that era. This seems like a time to me that it could have bit you in the ass for being compassionate and not more hard nose about it. Potentially, yes. So after I left San Diego uh, in 1982, I was there from 77. I was uh, U.S. Border Patrol and immigration inspector on the border processing individuals and cars coming through legally. I was able to uh, um, uh, obtain a position as a special agent with immigration in Los Angeles. So I get to L.A. as a special agent with immigration. Um, and one of our functions back then, besides working you know, jointly with other agencies, was also working the county jails. We had agents at the county jails, the release lines, every night where um, if they were not being processed and going on to state prison, if they're being released for whatever reason, um, the deputies at the L.A. County Jail, uh, Orange County Jail, all the different counties out there, would actually segregate who they believed to be aliens and citizens. So I used to work the midnight shift, midnight to eight. Um, deputies would segregate as many as they could that they thought were aliens. And... The, I walk into a holding room, there's maybe 100 aliens that I'm getting ready to process and, and, and put them on a bus and get them over to the federal building. And as I'm going through their documents, I have a gentleman who uh, presents to me one of his permit. And I'm looking at the permit and I'm saying to myself, and my, my stamp, my immigration stamp, my number back uh, in San Diego days when I was in, in, and then in Miami was 1703. And I'm looking at this permit and I'm saying, gosh, 1703, that's friggin' me. Wait a minute. It goes, I look at the guy. I said, I processed you in May of 1980 in Miami 
as one of the Mario, um, you know, boat lift you know, refugees. And here you are in L.A., you know, committing whatever the crime he committed at the time. Uh, and that I, I encountered the same guy twice uh, in three years. You know, over 100,000 people had come through. And what were the odds of, of encountering a guy in Miami and then the guy you admitted into the country and then the guy you uh, uh, now are at the L.A. County Jail processing for potential deportation? Uh, so, you know, they were, you know, you heard of being convicted of a felony. They, these, were one of, these were one of the uh, criminals that were let out and all they knew was, you know, criminal activity. Well, and that's why I bring that up, because that's a very good argument from a lot of people right. when they say that criminals are coming across the border, that they're not yep. going to learn their lesson. All they're right. going to do is turn their trade here and maybe get better at their trade. Well, I'm well, showing from 1980 till now, we're talking 42 years. There's not a lot of difference. So maybe you can talk to what that is today on the border, because that's still an argument. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go, I'll go, I'll give you a quick example. In Dade County, Dade County has the highest incident rate of Medicare and Medicaid fraud of any county in the country. Um, and the majority of the, the fraud being committed are being committed by Cubans who are now coming basically without um, uh, any interdiction. They come, come and go back and forth to Cuba. They're opening up fake clinics billing medicare billing medicaid uh the money so we we at the state level just like every other state we'll investigate medicaid fraud uh medicare is usually investigated by uh the fbi or health and human hhs uh, health and human services so you've got clinics that are billing like crazy millions and millions of dollars that are being lost that citizens um are entitled to are not getting because the fraud is so great well what's happening is today's environment the Cubans who were coming in on boats from Cuba to South Florida, um, the policy that's been in place when the Coast Guard interdicts a boat with Cubans, it's called wet foot, dry foot. If a boat is encountered with Cubans on the seas, the, uh, the Coast Guard will return the boat to Cuba. If the, if the boat makes land and they jump off the boat and touch land, they are safe. It's like, you know, it's like a, inside the park home run. They're safe. So what's happening is King's the majority, I'm sorry. King's X. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So yeah. now now the Cubans have gotten smarter. Instead of being interdicted by the Coast Guard, they're now taking boats to Nicaragua. Nicaragua requires no documentation to allow Cubans in. And then they're moving north, you know, through Guatemala, El Salvador, Mexico, and, and then crossing the border into Texas, Arizona, um, and, um, and and New Mexico. And what's happening is once they cross the border their foot touches U.S. territory, they are safe. And the bigger problem is that the Cuban government refuses to take back any Cubans that have been um, set, set up for deportation. So we have Cubans, thousands that have been ordered deported, but we can't deport them because the Cuban government won't receive them. So our relations with the Cuban government is minimal. So we have nothing to hold over their head to take back Cubans who have been ordered deported. So we're stuck with um, an individual who's been ordered deported by the courts. And since they can't go back, they're given work permits. They're still allowed to work. They're not a permanent resident, but they're in, they're basically in purgatory, but they'll be in purgatory until the day they die. So they can work, commit crime. Um, and the only way to stop them is either getting arrested and doing long sentences at the state level or at the federal level.
Um, that's our predicament. We're getting inundated through your state and, and, the, and the others on the southwest border. Which goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning. That puts us in that OODA loop, and right, right. the the court systems are not giving large sentences. It, it, right. It's a little right. better at the federal level, but the mm-hmm. states are not giving long sentences, so you're seeing that over and over and over again. Well, I, I go back on the Reagan and Bush. Under the Reagan and Bush era, when I was here with Customs, their policy was, Build more prisons, federal prisons. Keep building, 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 and we'll and we'll just incarcerate, incarcerate, incarcerate. You know, whatever the crimes might be, they were. The administration was totally um, in the camp that you commit a crime, you go to prison. Once um, the uh, the Clinton administration came in, the policy changed more to education, less enforcement. A lot of things changed, and what basically happened was we had less enforce or the enforcement was up, but the incarceration rate and the prosecutions were down under uh, under the Democrats. Um, so that was, but I used to tell them that the guys I work work with, I said, you know, guys would be upset. I said, listen, I've been around since Carter. I said, we work for the executive branch and we are at the mercy of whatever the executive branch wants. You can't, we don't make policy, we just follow policy. And um, that's our mission in life. Like it or not, that's what we we do. If, uh, if we're told that we're gonna investigate X and we're not gonna invest, uh, investigate Y, you know, that's, that's our marching orders. You know, you might not like it, and most of us didn't, but, you know, we were ethical and, you know, uh, professional enough to do what we were told. Well, and, and moving on to your next, that, that that holds even more true, moving on to the next part and the majority of your law enforcement career with Customs. Uh, you're there from 87 to 2006, so you spent right. way by by a, a landslide more time with this agency than anything but a lot of things changed. Talking to Bob, talking to those guys that worked this with you, there were all kinds of changes where you got 14 different names and you had to explain what you did because the job kept changing. And there were so many things. So we want to talk about Operation Overlord on this one. You and I had talked about that. You wanted to go into a little more depth. But before we go into that, since we were talking so much about having compassion, but also seeing recidivism. I want to talk about a story that you told me about that it worked out with you being compassionate. Um, You being, as this woman said, her kind of guardian angel. And I'm talking about Yvonne and her son, Miles. Uh, I want you to kind of set up the story because it's a pretty crazy story. What happened, how much you paid, and what you got done for her, and then what she turned around and did for the United States. Well, the uh, back in 1988, uh, myself and Alex Alonzo uh, had a very, very good relationship, just like Bob Slockman did with the Miami-Dade, back then it was called Metro-Dade, it was the county police. Um, and we had a great relationship with their narcotics, they had three separate narcotics units, and we had a great relationship with all of them. On this particular uh, day, uh, myself and Alex were called by one of the detectives uh, from the South narcotics unit and advised us they just arrested a female from uh, Jamaica and uh, she had she was pregnant she had a kilo or two kilos going to uh, the bus station the Greyhound station going to New York and um, she was arrested and they called us and uh, at the time she was permanent resident and she had a green card which could make her susceptible to deportation and we interviewed her Um, uh, I realized that she um, was you know desperate down and out 
Um, she agreed to cooperate and work with us. Um, we were able to get the state charges, basically, ultimately, uh, no process. Um, but what she was able to do, we had a, um, a major operation at the uh, Miami International Airport, Toronto Conspiracies. She was able to arrange for numerous loads of suitcases filled with marijuana coming into MIA. And we had a couple of undercover agents who were then able to retrieve the suitcases. It was all a law enforcement uh, operation, but they were being delivered to bad guys here in the Miami area. So on s several occasions, we because of her setting it up, we were able to uh, perform the undercover operation. No one was hurt. Uh, bad guys were arrested. Uh, she uh, did her due diligence. She did what we asked of her. Um, and when she was uh, ready to give birth in October of 88, she told her husband that I'm naming my, our son Miles. And he, she, she told me a story recently that he was adamantly opposed because he wanted the kid named after him. She goes, absolutely not. He's my guardian angel, and he's the reason I'm here, and he's the reason um, uh, that I'm naming our son Miles. Um, subsequently, I paid her uh, a substantial amount of money. She used the money to buy a home. Um, life turned out um, very, very well. Her son Miles uh, lives in, in the Tampa area. He's a, a real good guy. He named his son Miles. and. Uh, I never met him until about two months ago, and it was felt like I, I found my lost adopted, excuse me, my lost biological son that was up for adoption. It was a very emotional moment, had not seen his mom for 30 years, so I went with him um, and met Yvonne, and it was like old home week hugs and kisses, and you know, like I was just so proud of her that she was able to turn her life around. Her son became a... Um, a Tremendous member of society, um, you know, he uh, works for a uh, major security firm in uh, in Tampa. Has is married, has a son, and um, life went well for all of them. But the other part of the equation was the arrest could have caused her to lose the green card. And I went to because of my immigration experience, went to immigration and made sure that this was not going to be um, used against her and that she was ultimately able to uh, naturalize and become a U.S. citizen uh, because that, normally that doesn't happen on a conviction. Absolutely. 32 years so, later, I get to meet my, my namesake. Well, and that's what I was going to say. Is this, when you look back on your entire career, as long as it's been, is this one of the best moments of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, because I felt that, you know, the stars were aligned that, you know, um, she truly turned her life around. She, um, you know, didn't ultimately, you know, quote, lack of a better term, screw me and then get involved with criminal activity again. Um, that she had uh, raised a wonderful son, you know, you know, you know uh, became a productive member of society. So everything worked out. And it's just a very, very good feeling that we gave her that opportunity. And I have to say, that the detectives from Miami-Dade, um, you know, one of my closest friends who I work very closely with, Louis Fernandez, um, who was one of the uh, detectives instrumental in getting the charges dropped or, you know, no process after she um, completed what she said she would complete with, on the proffer uh, for us. So uh, the detectives that I work with were also very much compassionate. That's just a, but all around, I mean, the guys I work with, Alex had the same compassion, Lorenzo, um, you know, Bob Stalkman, the guys that I uh, work with and associated with, it was not, 
that macho attitude, you know, listen, we got to do our job. You know, you, 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 you committed a crime, well, um, you're going to get arrested. However, um, if a person is going to cooperate, and our job is all about informants, documenting informants. And back then, we had the money, U.S. Customs, we had millions to pay. The locals had great informants, and we had a, it was a beautiful marriage. They had the informants, we had the money, we documented them both ways, and um, which is ultimately what led us into our undercover operation. But it was because of that relationship that we established with the Narcotics South guys. Uh, Starkman, Bob Starkman was very instrumental with the, there was North, South, and Central. And, and Bob was very, very close with the Central Narcotics guys. He did a lot of money laundering with. So we had a lot of overlapping stuff. So if I had cases that took me into the money world, I would give it to uh, Bob Stockman. If Bob Stockman had cases with Narcotics guys from the Central uh, that go into, um, you know, smuggling through the airport or the seaport, he would give it to Miles and Alex. So we had this wonderful, wonderful relationship. Um, and we were just like, uh, it was like, it felt like every day we, we just won the World Series. That's, that was the feeling. Every day we won the World Series. Well, and, and a couple of times you did. I go back to this, the fact that I said about your career where it, it's anomalies that, that seem very strange. So June 13th, 2001, uh, you're working with the Paraguayan Federal Police. Uh, this was a straight money laundering thing, and I think Hezbollah was uh, involved. But you're talking right around that time frame of where the global war on terror takes off. You're at the forefront of it with this agency and with this investigation. So if we can talk a little bit about that, because I don't think a lot of people know what was happening before 9-11 happened in the global war on terror, because that's what it was. It was narco-terrorism, right. uh, because ultimately the money laundering back then was going to narco-terrorism. Well, uh, correct. Um, on the what, When I was stationed, I was temporary duty for um, months on end, to the American Embassy in Montevideo, Uruguay. Uruguay, our embassy in Uruguay, covered Argentina, Chile, and Paraguay. And we would, we at the embassy, our job was to any collateral request that was coming in from the United States customs agents or even locals that needed something done in one of those countries, it was our job to make contact with the authorities in those different countries and try to obtain assistance. Conversely, if they, those same individuals overseas had issues that they needed something resolved in the States, they would bring it to us. And then I would forward it to whatever office in the United States that the issue was uh, addressed to. So uh, what was happening um, in the late nineties, when China was really opening up um, the, the, number one, they filled the void um, in, um, in Venezuela. They filled the void when the Russians left Cuba, they marched into Cuba. So they took over uh, basically they, they, they planted themselves in Cuba. What they would do is when American businesses were starting to outsource and bring things over to China to be manufactured, consumer goods, um, and closing down factories here in the States, the consumer goods being produced in China was now, if, you, if DJ and Miles decided to open up a factory in China, they would be 50% partners. You could not open up a, a, a factory and be 100%. So the Chinese government would be a partner with you. Basically, what would happen is once they learned how to manufacture what we were manufacturing, they would open up a secondary um, manufacturing plant and put us out of business. And they would produce the same widgets that we were producing, but far cheaper. So you spent a million dollars to produce a DJ and get and, and own the rights. They would just counterfeit it 
and send it around the world. So basically what would happen is consumer goods from back then, you know, electronics, CDs, would cross the continent, South America, from uh, Chile to Paraguay on containers, on containers, land by container ship, and then but containers would cross the continent. And in this area of Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil was an area called Ciudad del Este, the city of the east. It was a on the Paraguay side, it bordered Brazil and it bordered Argentina. And in the city, you had in Paraguay, Lebanese and Chinese nationals. The Chinese nationals would receive all these goods from, the, from China and sell them to the Lebanese nationals, who in turn would market and sell it to the Brazilian market and the Argentine market. And the reason they were so successful in South America, the biggest problem that they encounter is duties, 100% duties, so everybody's smuggling. And I would have these conferences with government officials. I said, in the United States, we charge 3 and 4%. Every 100% of the people pay 100% of the duty. Down there, nobody pays 100%. And if you do pay, you're paying off the customs officials to get your stuff out of customs. So if you're a business owner in Rio de Janeiro or Buenos Aires, and you need 10 pieces of electronics, you would send 10 people to the border, buy them. You know, So each one had an exemption, um, say $1,000. So you buy... Every month, they would send 20, 30 people to the border to buy all these consumer goods that were resold in the domestic market in Brazil and Argentina. And the profits that were being made by the Lebanese, and we came, the only reason we found out about this was that on a monthly basis, American Airlines flying from uh, Asuncion, Paraguay to, uh, to Kennedy, uh, we were flying with 30 million, 40 million, 50 million in, in, in cash. Uh, that was going to the Federal Reserve in New York. And ultimately, what we were finding out that the cash that was being shipped was going through the, the Central Bank of Paraguay that was being deposited by these business owners. Um, and once we had an opportunity to literally interview some of these individuals that were willing to give us a little, talk to us a little bit, the bottom line was, the explanation was, listen, my mother lives in Beirut, my father lives in Beirut, and I'm sending money home to my parents. And when they go to the mosque on Friday, they pass the hat around just like you guys do on Sunday with the church. And if I send my mother $1,000 a month and the hat's being passed around by Hezbollah, they have no choice but to put money in the hat. And basically, that was, the, at the time, one of the biggest funding mechanisms for Hezbollah was the consumer goods being sold in South America, being produced by the Chinese who were not abiding by any international rules and counterfeiting all our products. So that was the, and it still goes on today at a much greater rate. But that was our first encounter, um, understanding what this whole you know, funding mechanism for terrorism. And basically the guys that I would interview would do the monkey, you know, put the hands over the eyes. I see nothing, hear nothing. You know, I'm just sending money to my mother. That would be the, uh, the ultimate answer. Uh, ultimately, these case, this, this case would be passed on to uh, uh, U.S. Customs in New York who were, ultimately, along with the FBI, able to make criminal cases against um, the individuals shipping the money and against individuals, um, you know, being receiving, you know, the, the funds overseas. But that was the very beginning of another mechanism for, 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 um, for uh, you know, you know, terrorist funding. So let me ask you two questions pop up there. One, uh, do you think ultimately that 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 was the goal of China the entire time? Uh, whether that be in a conscious way or a subconscious way was to help fund Terra to bring 
more trouble to American markets and things like that. And then number two, when you're talking about these guys transporting this money, are we into the Hawala era where there's no wire trails? There's no nothing. There's just books going back and forth. Or are they doing it through the banking systems? So bank, this is purely banking. System. The care, the first, the second, the second, second question, the money will be on the, the plane, American airlines, um, Lance and Kennedy, you got a Brinks truck, picking up the cash, taking it to the federal reserve being deposited. And on behalf of these business owners in in South America, um, and then you know, sending it you know back to wherever you know whoever they were sending cash to. So um, they have government top cover then. Well, correct. I mean, and 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 there was nothing um, on the surface illegal. You know, there were you know like you know, the, the, right. the the in theory, the the the, the We had the ability to charge for money laundering because the predicate offense was that they were dealing in counterfeit goods. So the counterfeit product. That if it was a shirt, if it was, a, you know, tires, electronics, the counterfeit product was a, uh, uh, you know, predicate offense for the money laundering. So dealing in, in counterfeit, you know, uh, products, uh, and that's what uh, customs was very, very good at in making those types of cases that you would not have, um, like the FBI would not be in tune with that. That's not something that they would deal with. So what basically what you're asking on the first part was, in my opinion, the worst mistake that was ever made was when you know President Nixon uh, met Mao Zedong and opened up China um, in 1971 to uh, the world. Basically, in 1971, they were they were stuck in the 15th century. In 30 years, the American perspective uh, position was: if we can get a billion people to stop buying our product, we're going to be you know doing great. The problem that no one ever saw with the unintended consequence was American businesses realized: wait a minute. If it's going to cost me ten dollars to produce this widget here in the states, I'm going to farm it off to a Chinese factory for two dollars. And the Chinese government did not pay unemployment tax. They didn't pay you know disability. They didn't pay, pay anything. So you had work, you know, um, factory lines of people working twelve-hour days at minimum wage. In my opinion, working for customs, the the what the position of the U.S. government, in my opinion, should have been was that the tariffs on the goods coming in from China should have equaled the cost of manufacture here in the States and let the consumer decide, okay, I'm going to buy an American or am I going to buy Chinese? Um, but the product should not have been so undercut and price-wise that you put all the factories out of business here in the States. And that's what ultimately happened. And we're at a point now that we, it's a point of, in my opinion, no return. You know, the Chinese have now taken what we've seen in 1999, 1998, 99, 2000, that was basically just coming to the United States, they've now transshipped all of this to the whole world. So they've got um, a footprint in every continent, every country, and every um, uh, every part of the planet because of consumer goods. It was the consumer goods that really set their economy on the pace that they are at. And all their military, what you're seeing today in the um, in, in, in the South China Sea, is all U.S. trade deficit money. So every ship, every submarine, every buildup that the Chinese, uh, every island that they have, uh, artificial island they built up off the Philippines, uh, off the you know, coast of Taiwan, everywhere, is because of the, the imbalance of money going to China and not to us. And that was, the mis in my opinion, the mistake we did opening up 
China it never afforded us the opportunity to sell anything to them. They just manufactured it. Um, five years ago, uh, China had the, the most cars that were ever purchased by any country, 22 million, that was the number I think in 15, 22 million cars purchased in China and 21 and a half million were made in China. There was no cars being imported, they were making themselves. So everything they've done in 50 years is absolutely incredible, but it was all for nefarious purposes to make them the superpower. And uh, and they are ascending to be that. We are on, we're declining, our manufacturing is completely gone compared to where it was 50 years ago. And the Chinese are as high on the pole manufacturing wise as they've ever been. And that's what, um, and they, they, they control the markets. Okay. So how do we counteract that then other than criminal, but you, you, criminal cases only go so far. Well, here, here's, here's, um, um, back in, in, in under Clinton, when we had NAFTA, North American free trade, you know, trade agreement. Um, the goal was Mexico, United States, and Canada to have free trade, no duties amongst the countries. It worked out well, number one. But number two, the, old, the other idea was under the Clinton administration, the more factories we build in Mexico, less aliens will be coming into the United States to work if we set more factories up in Mexico, if they can work in Mexico. Well, what happened was the Chinese, how um, insidious they become, if we have a quota, if we can produce, if we allow China to bring in 100, ba- 100 white baseball, I'll just give you an example, 100 white baseball caps a month. What they would do once their quota was up, they would transship their hats, thousands of them, whatever the product may be, to Mexico and relabeled as if it was made in Mexico. It was a Chinese product made in Mexico. We didn't know it. And all of a sudden you had now Chinese product entering the country on the NAFTA that was no longer part of the quota because it was presumed to be Mexican made. Um, so that's, that's how good the Chinese are and were and how they're beating us at our game. You know, like they were always one step ahead of us. We're always, you know, playing catch up. Under the previous administration, the thing, uh, you know, policy, not even getting the policies, the one thing that amazed me when President Trump chose to run in 16, when he was talking about the China problem, and I said to myself, I said, I can't believe he understands this. How does he know this? Everything we're talking about right now. Because I used to tell my son when he was eight, nine years old, I, I begged him, to learn Mandarin, I jo- jokingly, I said, if you learn Mandarin, you can be the um, the landlord in 50 years here in the States, um, taking the money back to China. I said, you learn you learn Mandarin. This is 98, 99 when he was nine years old. I told him, learn Mandarin and you'll be a, a, a very smart man. Well, Trump understood what the problem was. And I was absolutely floored and amazed that he got it. What happened was the Chinese are so good that they played along. He put 25% tariffs on all these different commodities. And what did the Chinese do? They just have a waiting game. They knew that he's only here for four years, maybe eight. We're here for life. Like, you know, like, like the Russians. As it, I don't know how you compete against a dictator. So you got China with a dictator, you got Russia with a dictator. Here we change administrations every four or eight years. So the Chinese, all they had to do was outweigh him. And that's what they did. You know, and, and, and everything went back to normal for them. It's very, so, very disturbing. Let's talk about, because I want to kind of tie in the money laundering too. Okay. So let's talk about Operation Overlord a little bit. Now, of course, we're not talking about China. We're talking about a, a different set, right. but same kind of ideas that, that was being used to launder the money. Right. Well, Operation Overlord at the time, uh, this is 1990. 
U.S. Customs was the first agency in the federal government, FBI, DA, the first agency where we were, it's called a certified undercover uh, undercover operation. When they say certified, you, you get main treasury, the treasury department will certify and allow you to do certain illegal activities. For instance, if you're depositing um, excess of uh, you know $10,000, the reporting requirements, you're allowed to move money as a governmental entity undercover without the fear of uh, being prosecuted. So at the time when I, uh, myself and Alex, we, we wrote um, the undercover proposal. The proposal was I used Alex's knowledge of um, his customs house broker experience to, and Alex said, let's open up an undercover import export business. But he said, we've got to open up a business that's not, not sterile. So when bad guys show up, you have a room full of stuff, but actually stuff is moving, coming and going, trucks are moving, trucks are going. So we opened up a warehouse with a, with a, with a business component where we were so good that we had local import exporters using our facility. They knew who we were, but the benefit they got was they got it rent free. So they were able to use our facility coming and going. But so bad guys would show up. You would see a warehouse full of cargo. You would see um, trucks moving all the time to the seaport, to the airport. And this was all Alex's world prior to coming to customs. And so the, the business model was Alex played the Cuban American from Miami who knew the business. Miles Son played the Jewish bankroller from New York who knew, uh, knew not so much about dope or, or business, but was just an investor in the business. And then thirdly, we had a tremendous female inform, uh, informant who was a Colombian American whose husband was incarcerated in Baltimore. He was arrested by DA. He was a pilot. And she was working on behalf of him to get his sentence reduced, along with working for us to make money and make cases. So for three years, Alex posed as the boyfriend to the Colombian, and I posed as Alex's vice president of the business. And we literally traveled around South uh, South America. We traveled around the country. Um, she was able to put forth numerous deals of, of narcotics coming into the MIA. She convinced people in Colombia that we had the hook at the airport where we can get anything through. So we would have loads coming in on a daily basis. The problem was, at the time, we had loads coming through and we didn't have enough recipients. We didn't have enough uh, constant needs. We didn't have enough buyers. So my narcotics units uh, from Miami, the local, from Hialeah PD, Miami-Dade, City of Miami, they would use um, um, our dope and do reverses. And we were fortunate part of the undercover operation allowed us to take the proceeds, part of the proceeds that were made from selling of the dope, sending it back to Colombia, where we would inform DEA, at the time there was no customs in, in Colombia then, we would inform DEA, we worked very closely with them, that this load just came through, they knew about it, the money is being sent, they would go up on a wire with the uh, with the Colombia National Police going after the shippers and trying to target who the bad guys were in Colombia because of us receiving it, selling it, and sending money back, partial payment back to the bad guys, just keeping them on the hook. We wouldn't send the whole thing back, just enough so they'd send another load and keep sending. And this operation went on, and it was, um, it was just a very phenomenal operation. The big problem was that everyone we worked with other agencies could not understand how we were doing this. Other agencies were not in the forefront, and there was a lot of 
internal jealousy. It was, and we, we were, we, we accepted all comers. We worked closely with a DA group out of Fort Lauderdale, even though we we're in Miami. And at the time, the special agent, special agent in charge for DA um, was hearing complaints about DA Miami upset that DA Fort Lauderdale was working with Miles and Alex on Operation Overlord. And the, and the sack for DA says, I don't care who works with them, as long as someone from DA is working with them and they're getting along, I don't care if it's Fort Lauderdale, I don't care if it's Key West. And he was a real cool guy, this guy, uh, you know, Tom Cash. And he was really cool knowing, okay, that this is a great operation, a great thing going. I'm not going to be the guy who's going to upset the apple cart. So Alex's knowledge of the import-export business made this happen. Our ability to recruit import-exporters from the local community was based on Alex and Miles going out and schmoozing and being able to talk to these guys and convincing them to become, you know, just use our facility. And um, we were extremely, extremely successful uh, to the point where uh, we were, myself and Alex, it's a funny story. We're in Columbia and we were there on official business. We're at the embassy. We went out that night to eat at a restaurant. And Alex is, we're at a restaurant and Alex is talking to some of the um, embassy people at the bar and they're all talking Spanish. And he has an individual hear his accent and the guy asked him in spanish so where, where are you from you know hialeah he goes me too they started to go talking the guys so go what are you down here for well the same alex you know cool as cool as cucumbers so same thing as you and uh and the guy was down there to, so, you know for a dope deal and alex gives him our undercover business card and says if you need anything transportation i'm the man and alex and uh, they subsequently um uh, hooked up and it's so funny that in Colombia they hooked up in Miami to uh, ultimately, you know, to get a, uh, a uh, you know, we put a deal together for the guy, you know, subsequently arrested. But that was the funniest story that Alex was we're there on official business and Alex meets a bad guy because he heard his accent. Well, I would like to ask, and, and maybe you don't know the yeah. answer. I, I want to talk about the scale of this. How much one dope do you think for the entire operation was either taken in, sold, whatever it may be, and how much money total for this entire operation? Well, um, when the operation, when Alex and I, Alex subsequently transferred to um, uh, Venezuela, I transferred to another group, the operation still continued. Um, when we left in 91, there was $5 million in the account um, with, uh, you know, we had, at the time, uh, 1990, no one had cell phones. We had we supplied every cop, every agent with a cell phone. We supplied every officer with, um, you know, you know, rental bills. Now it's commonplace, but back then it wasn't. Um, um, I know at the end when the operation was shut down, sometime in 98 and 99, one of the undercover operators who did the books said there was over 20 million. 20 million was in the account. Somewhere around 20 million was in the account, and um, there was over, you know over 3000 kilos. It was over a hundred arrests. Um, you know, the numbers were just, you know, through the roof. It was just, you know, um, you know, uh, it was staggering. It was staggering. And now we had FBI come to us. We had, uh, people, uh, coming to us wanting to use our business. You know, like the FBI, they would get intelligence about smuggling. They knew to call miles and Alex. You know, it was that we were that we were the airport seaport group that everyone, uh, wanted to deal with. Um, at the time we were the only agency that had, three certified undercover operations. We had one, we had one, there was a second one at the seaport, and there was a third one that was um, done for private planes at a homestead, Florida, where we would send, that was in Miles and Alex, but another customs operation where private planes going down to Colombia and Venezuela, bringing dope back to the Bahamas. So three certified operations, making a lot of money, making a lot of arrests, um, putting a lot of bad guys away, 
um, and it was extremely, extremely su successful. I mean, that alone, that Operation Overlord could be, uh, you know, a, a movie in itself. I mean, where Alex was sitting behind the desk and we had um, one of our bad guys who made a lot of money, over $400,000. She had, she, it was a female. She didn't know what to do with her money. And I, we convinced her to meet Alex. Alex actually said, listen, you give me a check for your money. I will give you my a check you know, from our business account and, um, you'll, you'll be set. So to make her feel comfortable, you know, 10,000 here, 10,000 here, she gave him 10,000. He got a $10,000 check back. So like she, she wasn't banged on the first go around. Ultimately she gave her, she gave up all her 400 grand. And, um, and when she gave the 400 grand, we deposited and it, it cleared, she was arrested and she lost, you know, all her money. She not only lost her money, but Alex was so good to convince her that he could smuggle uh, uh, launder her money, and we were at the time uh, uh, a, a narcotic smuggling group. But Alex was so good that he convinced her to give him or the business. Um, uh, it was called Impomar, um, her mon the money, and she did. And she, you know, uh, and, you know, subsequently was arrested. And that was just one of numerous, you know, cases that were being filtered through. Um, the business. We had to move on several occasions because once the place got burned, we moved to another location. But um, bottom line was, uh, you know, we were, you know, very, 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 you know, we're successful operation. I can never deal on the cover with Hispanics. I, for some reason, was, uh, if I had to deal on a mini basis, I was very good with um, uh, African-Americans. As a matter of fact, my informant, the female, her husband was in Baltimore County Jail. I was on the phone with him. I said, you need to tell everybody in jail that you are the second coming of Pablo Escobar. Because all he was was a pilot. But they knew he was Colombian. It was all, the jail was loaded with African-Americans. And all they wanted was dope deals. And he, he was like literally going fishing. And I would, um, on every other week, myself and the informant would fly up to Baltimore with Alex and doing deals with African-Americans that just got out. And it was me and Amparo. I played, again, I was the Jewish business guy so I can smuggle anything in. Um, as soon as I get my load, I'll, we'll, we'll front the tears. It's going to cost you 5000 for heroin, 2500 for a kilo. But once you sell it, we got to get, um, you know, our, our money. And we would just pick these guys off left and right. It was like we told them they had to pay the transportation fee. And they'd come up with the cash instantaneously. We would give them the dope, and they were arrested. Now, now who are you going to give? It was like a game of tag. Now give us the next guy. And it was because of a great informant. A great undercover, you know, Alex, and a great business model that I don't believe has ever been replicated to this day. Um, uh, you know, ATF used us. You know, you know, Bob Salkin would bring in his detectives. You know, we, we allowed it to be used by all comers. Um, the business, once I got out of it and Alex came back as a, super, a second line supervisor, um, Lorenzo was then part of that operation. And that's how he and Alex um, were able to, you know, the, you know, the, the Miami Vice movie, when Michael Mann asked uh, Customs, can you um, train um, our actors how to be smugglers? And Alex and Lorenzo, uh, through our business, uh, train, you know, Jamie Foxx uh, on, on how to be cops in undercover businesses. And uh, it, was, it was, you know, it was, you know a great story in itself that Lorenzo and Alex were able to use our real business acumen to make a movie out of and uh it was uh, just proud of all of them they're just very very proud and it was no the bottom line the way it worked internally is we had no egos it was all for one with a bunch of musketeers all for one one for all and when one one of us succeeded we all succeeded and uh it was like going literally going to work every day playing in the playground could not ask for 
anything more. Uh, it was, you know, tremendous, tremendous, tremendous operation. It went on for almost 10 years, 10 years, Operation Low Blood. Well, and and when you talk about that, it's all for one and one for all. You, you, I think, leave out a very important factor. You say when we win, we all win. If one right. of us wins, we all win. Right. But I think in talking to all those guys, if you failed, you all failed. And that's what drove that point home so much was you couldn't let each other fail on these operations. Well, that, that, that is correct. But the other component that was also about, you know, doing the morally correct thing and the, and the right thing. Back then, customs had two components. You had the inspectors, the uniform guys at the airport, and the agents, the investigators. The, the inspectors would be analogous to a uniform cop on the street. They, at the airport, they had seaport cargo. These guys with the eyes and ears, they had intimate knowledge of what's going on in the airport, very, very detailed stuff. We made sure, Miles and Alex made sure that these inspectors, and they were called contraband enforcement team inspectors, were always a part. When they had information that they believed was going occurring with regard to an internal conspiracy at a warehouse or a, a, an employee, they would pass it on to us once we get it. They were now part of the investigation somehow, some way, either be it in the um, in surveillance or when a seizure would occur, they would be the ones that would get the the, the seizure, the statistic for the seizure, the arrest would occur. They would get all the kudos. And this all stemmed from when we started going to Columbia and working with DA in 89 and 90 in Columbia and Columbia uh, DA would look at us like, why are you coming down here? They thought we were a bunch of carpetbaggers and they were very um, uh, concerned that customs agents are coming down here to do something and not tell us. So I explained to them what our mission was at the time and it's still in place today. U.S. Customs, the, um, the regulatory component would fine carriers if um, either illegal aliens were on the plane or contraband was on the plane. So if American Airlines was caught with a couple of kilos, they potentially are looking at uh, being liable for hundreds of thousands of dollars for having dope on the plane. My job, as well as Alex, I had wore a second hat. We, it was called the, the Super Carrier Initiative Program. We would fly down to South America and to all the different airports and look at the operation. And while we were down there, I would be with DEA, you know, hand in hand. And my job was to not only see the operation, how it worked, but I was recruiting left and right as many informants as I could. I would be there with inspectors, so they felt they were part of the team. And any uh, documented informant, we would turn over to DEA, and I said, listen, your job is to contact DEA if you see anything suspicious. DEA, if you see anything suspicious and you believe that something's coming up, contact Miles or Alex. Miles and Alex would then contact the inspectors, look at, you know, Avianca Flight 006 out of Bogota. Um, they would inspect it. If the dope was on, um, they would make the seizure. We would try to make the controlled delivery. DEA would get the credit for, for allowing the stuff they believe was on the plane to go north. Avianca would not get uh, penalized um, because we were allowing this to occur to make arrests in South America and in, in, in South Florida. So the relationship that we established you know, amongst ourselves, Alex, Miles, DEA, um, you know, the inspectors, we made the inspectors a full-time member of this operation. They were, um, because they were not allowed to document informants. They, they were made, certain guys were made privy to our undercover business. We showed them this is what we're doing. Um, where it incentivized them to even work harder with the regards being on the field and trying to be our eyes and ears and come up with intelligence. And we made 
this operation of full-fledged, you know, uh, you know, top shelf, you know, bottom up, you know, bottom up, uh, unbelievable, uh, you know, uh, operation. You had the specters, you had the locals. So again, like I told you earlier, if we had suitcases coming up, bad guys in Colombia were begging to get the suitcases on our flights because they thought we can get it off. You have suitcases with 30 kilos that were, were consolidated loads. You know, five belong to DJ, five belong to Miles, five belong to, you know, Stockman. You have a suitcase with multiple kilos in the suitcase that were going to different places so ultimately you know the bad guys were so in tune and wanted to get the dope because they were getting money back um until they got arrested sometime in the future by the Colombian by the colombians and dea but that's how involved we were able to be working with all these different entities it was not like this is mine i'm keeping it close to the chest it was the other way around let's be as open as we can and that's why we had all this success and working with you know we had a special um, agent from dea you know gene blahato who was a fourth former baltimore cop streetwise knew the benefits of working with our undercover operation explained this to his da office and they they were impressed working with him you know with 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 us allowing gene blahato to be one of our partners so it was all about working relationships and making sure that you never screwed the other guy you're like you know like if you, you're making a case um it was there's many more to be had no one's taking the kudos for this one okay this is all you know miles on and customs nope because there was 10 more coming down the pipe and uh this was all of us you know you know like if uh, on the affidavit the story would be you know line by line agent son did this agent alonzo did that you know detective so-and-so did this so making sure that everybody got their just due and their just reward and that's what i was always proud of of you know uh, and then when lorenzo became a boss and alice became a second line supervisor what made him especially uh special was the fact that he alex being a second line boss knew what it was like working at the agent level and knew what the agents needed from management to make those operations succeed so he was always that guy who him and lorenzo always managed by yes never managed by no never you know like we'll make we'll make this happen no matter right. what it takes well and i think you carry that team mentality all the way over into when you were part of operation purple haze right because as i look through the documentation about it that you sent me it's not just your name there's all kinds of people's names so this is how I want to kind of wrap up your career yeah. wrap up our conversation is talking about purple haze and what kind of led it for you being you know, named the the state agent of the year, but there were also a couple other people that came behind it that also won awards. Well, real quickly, um, Walgreens and CVS, this is 2015, 16, 17, Walgreens and CVS was, were, were, were being hit, burglarized nightly, nightly, um, in basically Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County. Um, they were being burglarized initially for the promethazine and codeine and that was the uh, the 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 the, uh, the 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 drinks that the rappers would basically uh you know drink and get high on uh the burglaries started morphing into all the opioids what happened was um walgreens came to fdle one of my supervisors who i adored greatly you know chris Ware, he's my asac um had a relationship with one of the security managers and the manager said you know chris i need help we're getting hammered i went to dea DEA DA is not looking at this because it's not a schedule one, you know, at the time promethazine and no one's giving us any help. 
the fact that it was multiple counties, multiple jurisdictions, as a state law enforcement officer, we had statewide authority. Um, as a special agent, you know, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, state police, we can investigate anything anywhere. So my boss dropped it on my, uh, my, my lap and um, I off started running. I made a couple of contacts here in Broward County with regard to some of the burglaries, some of the BS, Broward Sheriff's Office detectives. And um, one of the detectives, who, who was a sergeant, Shane Schroeder, who I adore like, like my kid brother, we started running with this because everybody was masked and everybody was gloved. The cameras, the, 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 it was very, very difficult to identify. Um, but what was happening, the Broward County Sheriff's Office had a, uh, a burglary apprehension team, which my son was subsequently on. And once we were able to identify some of the group, we were able to get put trackers on the cars and follow them from location A to location B and you know track them, track them, track them. And ultimately, um, we were able to make uh, 11 arrests. One of the arrests was um, the mother of one of the uh, females who she was a medical assistant at the local jail in Dade County. And she, she was offered a year earlier. I went to her. I said, listen, your daughter is going to get, you know, arrested and she's screwed. She is the, the baby, the baby mama for the number one ringleader. I said, your daughter is buying weapons and providing these weapons to her boyfriend, who's a felon. And we're asking you, do you want to, and working with the statewide prosecutor was a lot better than working with um, the state attorney. The statewide prosecutors had the ability to tell us right then and there. I said, hey, can we make her a witness or a defendant? And we had the, I said to the mother and the daughter, I said, you have this opportunity right now. Myself and my partner, Shane Schroeder, said to him, said to both of them, do you want to be a witness or a defendant? And they just laughed at us. And I said, we're coming back. I said, this opportunity only comes around once. You've been offered the uh, the deal. You've turned it down. I guarantee you, you will, uh, the both of you will be arrested. They And they ultimately were. It was a whole family affair. And what basically happened was they were committing all these burglaries, selling it to a major distributor who was selling all this to the rappers. And the major distributor was being investigated by HSI, I was able to ascertain that only because of understanding how HIDA worked and deconfliction, and I was able to check with them, and that's when they told me that HSI was working this individual. We charged him not only federally, he got 30 years, he was convicted, he's now awaiting uh, uh, trial at the state level, and I, we offered him, before he went to state and federal court, he was offered a 12-year deal. He turned it down, I said, I said, before you turn this down, I said, Think about where you want to do your time. Do you want to do it federal or state? I said, if you go to court federal, federal, federally and lose, and you lose with us, I will guarantee you, not you. we might do it, you know, uh, you know uh, it won't be consecutive. It'll be, you know, together, but you're going to do your time in a state pen and not a federal pen. So, you know, even where you want to do it, he still turned it down. He wasn't giving up any of the rappers. Um, and, you know, that's, we thought we were really going, you know, we were going to start, you know, picking off, you know, these major players, he refused. He, you know, got 30 years. He's still looking at another, you know, sentence here. And we still talk about, do I give him concurrent or we give him consecutive? He chose not to help us. We can go, you know, you know, consecutive. But he was offered 12 years and concurrent sentence in a, in a, in a, federal, a federal institution. And now he's doing uh, 30 and might wind up doing the whole time in a state, you know, a state facility. So operate, you know, that whole case, was made because of the cooperation of 
um, HSI, um, you know, the Broward Sheriff's Office, um, the statewide prosecutor, who I, gentleman I adored, he was an unbelievable man, Hunter Davis, who now is a, a state judge here in Broward County. He gave us the latitude and the ability to make this case happen. And uh, it was truly a remarkable case. And my job, I always, the way I describe it, was I was like the band leader, the conductor. I would gather all the different reports, all the different um, uh, cases from all the it was 16 jurisdictions. So I try to collate and put everything together and figure out where's our next best option. How do we target these guys? So I was like, you know, the, the guy behind the scenes, okay, let's, let's go here, let's go there. And um, being able to have all these agencies want to be part of it was basically because, okay, FDLE is involved. Miles on again, I said, listen, it's not about me. It's about you guys. We want to get these guys off the street and we want to stop these burglaries and um, let's work together. So they hire Leah, City of Miami, Miami-Dade, uh, Palm Beach Sheriff's Office, Broward Sheriff's Office, all these different departments knew that Miles wasn't coming in to usurp them or try to get any kudos or credit. And if, when you look at the uh, the award, you see you see how many different entities were involved and how many people made this case happened. And um, my, my statewide prosecutor said this case for him was the true, they're all charged with racketeering and convicted. And this is the, you know, like the PowerPoint of a, of a racketeering case. That's how we described it. You know, this was the, the case that made racketeering, uh, you know, what it is. So I was very proud of all the people I work with and they did a magnificent, magnificent job. And I still to this day enjoy going to work because I'm still around guys like yourself me, you know, in Miami, FDLE is all retired guys from somewhere and everyone has a contact. So everyone's had a career. So coming to work is just like going to the, uh, you know, the fraternity house and hanging out with your buddies. And what, hey, DJ, what do you need? Miles, what do you need? It's, uh, it's one of those things because no one here is looking to make their bones anymore. Everyone's done it. Well, Miles Son, you have had an amazing yeah. career. We didn't even get into the military, going to yeah. the Middle East, anything yeah. like that. I think we could have probably talked for about three more hours. What I do want to know, though, finishing up, is what's next for you? Is there a book? Is there what? What is going to happen with you? Um, well, my 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 last my ma last mission in life um, is I mentioned to you before. Before my son left BSO and went to HSI, I was able to do a father son. Um, co-affiant um, on a convicted felon with a gun. My mission in life is I want to do, before I retire, one with my daughter, a father-daughter one, and then I can just, you know, um, you know, hang it up. And I said to my son at the time back in 17, he was embarrassed, and I said to him, I said, you will, you will want this for posterity and show your son one day. And he's got a son three years old. I said, one day you'll put this in a frame, you'll see Miles son, Michael son, co-affiants, you know, walked into the courtroom, the duty judge says, you guys related? I said, Your Honor, I haven't seen my son. He goes, man, that is cool as heck. I've never seen a father-son co-affiant. And uh, my mission is to try to do one more, one with my daughter, and uh, and then I can hang him up. And then I can hang him up. Well, uh, I definitely, if anyone can make that happen, I think it will be you. Where can people find you if they want to look into you a little more? Um, you can, uh, listen, I am um, open on my personal email. It's like, you know, miles355 at AOL.com. Um, that's where I am. And uh, if you look at, um, you know, Miles355, I'm on um, on Twitter as well. And uh, I'm open to anything if anyone wants to speak to me. Or, you know, my, my other mission in life is to try to give advice to young ones coming up 
where how to proceed in law enforcement. Um, my mission in life is young ones who are local law enforcement, trying to get them into the federal system as quickly as they can and, and have the ability to have the run that I, that myself, Bob Stockman, Alex Alonzo, Lorenzo Toledo had. Um, I just wish that I can give that to everybody who's, who's got the talent. Um, I, you know, that's my goal in life is to try to get the young ones into the federal system and become great investigators at the federal level. So I am always available at miles 355 at AOL.com. And they can always get me on my, uh, my cell is 954-793-1813. Well, it's an amazing to hear. And, and I can't believe you gave out your cell, but that tells I'm, you just I'm, how I'm, much you're willing to, to I, put yourself out there on the line. I, uh, I want to, we've been talking about them all night. I want to give a big shout out to the off, uh, organized coffee club boys. Uh, oh, Bob yes. Starkman sent yep. me this shirt. Yeah. Uh, they've been instrumental in bringing great guests and great stories to the show. So I want to give a big shout out to those Thank guys. You. If you. you guys want more than me or more of me, I should say, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Guys, don't forget to go check out our sponsor, police coffee at policecoffee.com. I tell you every week, it's an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they're made to provide with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. And I'll go along with that because this week, I got my new shipment in for this month, and the chocolate raspberry donut is out of this world, and I also got a bourbon blend that is absolutely fantastic. Make sure you check it out because their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause. They give back to the community. 50% of their profits goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. Remember, if you go to policecoffee.com, you put in the code DJK10, you get 10% off your order. Guys, I think that's going to be about it for the show this week. It was amazing to have you on the show, Miles. I'm so appreciative that you came here and that you uh, took the time to tell these stories of, of everything that you've done. So, guys... That's going to be it. Make sure you check us out, dtdpodcast.net. All these are in audio and video form. You can find out and see more pictures about Miles. We're going to catch you guys on the next show. That's Miles. I'm DJ. We'll catch you on the next one. See you later. Thank you, And sir. we're out of here. Thank Absolutely. You, Good night.